This is Chapter 92 of the WCBS Author Talks podcast. Find us on Twitter and Instagram at WCBS880Books. I'm Lisa Chernkovich. Coming up, we talk to best-selling thriller author Brad Meltzer, who's written his first nonfiction book about a real-life plot to kill George Washington. Historian Eric J. Dolan regales us with tales of America's pirates. And we find out how one little lie can snowball in the newest thriller from Tom Hunt. If you think every story about the American Revolution has already been told, think again. In his first nonfiction book, best-selling thriller writer Brad Meltzer uncovers one of history's dirty little secrets, a plot by the governor of New York and the mayor of New York City to kill George Washington. Sorry, George. Brad recently spoke with our Pat Farnack about the first conspiracy, the secret plot to kill George Washington. It's hard to imagine the American Revolution succeeding without George Washington, and certainly the British were thinking the same thing. That's exactly right. I found this story nearly a decade ago in the place where all good stories hide, which is in the footnotes. And one of the things I found was I was like, is this real, a secret plot to kill George Washington? Did this happen? How does no one know about this? And it was real. There was a plot to kill him. George Washington, when he found out about it, he gathered up those responsible. He built a gallows and he hanged the man in front of 20,000 people. It was the largest public execution at that point in North American history. George Washington brought the hammer down. Um, but I became obsessed with it and had been working on it. Uh, brought in my friend Josh Mensch to help with research and writing. And basically we've done uh, my first nonfiction book, which is The First Conspiracy the secret plot to kill George Washington. That's what it was. It was the first conspiracy in this new place that we were, you know, called America. I'm certainly glad for your obsession because it was a fascinating read. Um, I couldn't help but think that George Washington, when all this was going down, especially right after the the hanging of uh, Thomas Hickey, he must have been so depressed, especially when his own housekeeper, Mary Smith, could have perhaps been involved in the plot against him. Yeah, and that's what blew me away is how close it got to him. It was personal. It was people he knew. And, you know, I I didn't know that George Washington had his own personal bodyguards, for example. And he had asked all of his, uh, all of the regiments for their, he wanted his four best men. So give me your four best men. And he narrowed it down to about 50 of them. They became the general's guards. They became the commander's guards, they were called also. But the name that actually stuck for them was the lifeguards, because one of their jobs was to guard George Washington's life. And as you said, these were the men who turned on him. And I don't care how strong you are or what kind of general you are, that is a moment that is devastating to George Washington. Well, that was devastating, but also the the army, the rabble that he had surrounded himself with, that he had to deal with and and turn into the Continental Army. If I could read just uh, some of your terrific prose, farmers, Common laborers, ex-criminals and beggars, some suspiciously old, some suspiciously young, and some of them were wielding pitchforks and shovels as weapons. And some of them, as it turned out, were also being bought and turned just as the lifeguards were against Washington. Yeah. You know, one of the things that really struck me is we we love to say, um, you know, how unified we were back then because today we're so divided. Mm -hmm. But we were a mess. We were messing every way that our own military was fighting amongst our, themselves. The regiments from Massachusetts hated the regiments from Virginia. They were making fun of their uniforms. A huge fight breaks out. George Washington, in this one scene that I love in the book, comes racing in on his horse. 
he jumps off the horse, grabs two of the biggest guys by the neck, and he's shaking them, basically saying, stop fighting with each other. We're on the same team. And, you know, we forget that there was no United States back then. George Washington helped build it. And he did it by putting his arms around the everyone and, and willing it together. And that's what we need in our leaders is, is people who can bring us together, because I'm certainly tired of fighting um, just like George Washington. We get nowhere when we fight. Amen to that. And not only that, George Washington seemed to have been such a, a civilized guy. And there was a big problem with booze among some of these these recruits. You write that the typical male consumed five shots of rum per day, that it was probably worse in New York City when they were headquartered there, and that the booze was extra boozy back then. I can't even imagine. And what's crazy is you can see what when you bring 10,000 men to New York City, guess what happens? They want to drink. They want to gamble. They're going to, you know, to prostitutes. George Washington's a, a civilized Virginian gentleman. And he, you know, his, his orders of the day, you'll see him in the book, are like, stop gambling. Stop drinking. Stop with the prostitutes. It was like, you know, and he had to, again, bring, bring out of chaos a sense of order. But it's not easy. In fact, in the, first, in the Battle of Brooklyn, one of the first great battles, uh, we get our butts kicked. George Washington mm. gets out generaled. He, you know, we get, he gets pinned down against the East River. He's got the British in front of him, the East River behind him. And this should be the end. He's pinned down. And instead, in that moment, what George Washington does is he does the best thing he always does. He adapts. And he plans a daring escape in the middle of the night, commandeers all the boats along the East River, and one by one, he puts his men in the middle of the night, gets them on board the boats and sails them across the river. But the key moment is this, is that George Washington himself won't get on any of the boats until his troops get in first. And they see him risking his life for them. And that's one of those moments where we come together as a country. So I love that you get to see the secret plot to kill George Washington. I love that you get to see who's in on it and how it was stopped. But I also love just as much that you get to see the depth in this book of George Washington's character. Oh, certainly, certainly. Uh, another aspect, in early 1775, the British had, had plans for a kind of biological warfare with uh, within the smallpox oh, epidemic. This. And they wanted to send a person with smallpox into the Continental Army camps, but also to get one of them, I guess, near George Washington. And little did they know that he was immune <laughs> That's amazing. Uh, this one blew me away as well, um, because what happens is, is, as you said, smallpox is sweeping through the army. And it's devastating. If George Washington gets smallpox, we are done for, right? This is a disaster. And one of the things they figure out is that they're going to quarantine him. They don't know what to do, but they figure out George Washington, when he was a kid, went with his brother, who was actually infected with a different disease, but they went to the Caribbean because that's where they thought that the nice weather and the cool air was going to, that was what they thought was going to cure him. But what they also realized is back then, a young boy named George Washington gets exposed to smallpox. And thanks to his brother, who's now dead, that George Washington's immune. And whether you want to call it God, or as George Washington called it, Providence, or whatever you want to call it, that is just one of those magical moments where all of history changes, but for that moment.
The governor of New York at the time was William Tryon. He had a plot to, going back to the members uh, members of the Continental Army, he had a plot to turn as many of them as he could within the army so that they would, when the time came, rise up against their brothers and there could have been disaster. As we mentioned, the lifeguards of George Washington and even perhaps his housekeeper, how close did they come or how widespread, I guess I'm asking, were these payoffs to some of these Continental Army members. As the plan, as you said, the plan was is when the British invaded, is that all these people who were in our military were going to suddenly switch sides, mm. and they were going to get the jump on us. And it would have, again, been devastating, thanks to John Jay and the Committee on Conspiracies. Um, that's what actually stopped it, as we said. And, uh, you know, but for them, you know, we, we can't really know how extensive the plot was because it was foiled. So we never really know how close they came. You know, some people in fact still argue and say, you know, some of them were going to kill him. Some say they were going to kidnap George Washington. Either way, if they kidnapped him, they would have hung him because that's what they did back then with, with at his level of, of uh, in the military. But um, my God, think, you know, I think my favorite part of the book is to see how the plot is thwarted. And I don't want to ruin that part, but you can see, as you know, that it's an ordinary person sitting in the middle of the most unlikely place on the most unlikely night, gets to hear something he should have never heard. And in that crazy moment, all of history can basically right there change. And that's how history always is. It can't be predicted. It's this fluid thing. It, it moves like mercury in a moment. Um, but it, it's not a bunch of dates and facts you memorize. That's not what history is. History is a selection process, and it chooses people at moments in time. It chooses every single one of us every single day. And the only question is, do you hear the call? It It is frightening to think if the conspiracy had succeeded, how it could have changed. It would have changed the, the course of history. Oh, absolutely. And I think what's so important, you know, we tell these stories um, to our kids that everything, you know, especially in, in history class. And I, I was taught them, too, mm-hmm. you know, is, is, you know, right. The shot heard around the world and then there's a battle and the Declaration of Independence and you know, we, we, there's a war, George Washington, we have a, a constitution, George Washington is the president, and we live happily ever after. But <laughs> um, it's just never that easy. And, and, when you, and if it's easy, why would anyone study it? What's, we do our kids far more service to tell them the truth. And maybe it's because we like to whitewash. We, we're a country founded on legends and myths, and the legends and myths we love most are our own. But I'm far more impressed when something's hard. And this was, you know, one of the most difficult battles. We, we couldn't even tell you if your neighbor was on, on the British side or on your side. You think we were fighting now. Um, you should have seen it back then. And, and I think we need to teach our kids how hard it was. We need to teach our kids that George Washington wasn't perfect. The thing we do today is we take our heroes and we dip them in granite. And then we put them on pedestals and we make statues of them. But we do no service when we do that. The far more interesting story is the true story. It's why, to me, the first conspiracy is so much fun, because it's it's the story that really happened. Well, thank you so much for writing it and for telling me all about it this morning. I appreciate it. No, and and listen, this is the book. You know, we got blurbs on the book from two U.S. presidents, from President George H.W. Bush and from Bill Clinton. And finally, after all these years, I impressed my wife because two U.S. presidents like the book. Um, but I think, you know, we, the reviews we've gotten and your support, I just want to say thank you to everyone out there. It's so great to see people responding to this wonderful book. It is a wonderful book. And, and thank you, Brad. Thank you. 
The golden age of piracy only lasted some 70 years, but it's had an outsized influence on our imaginations. For example, just think of the countless number of books, movies, theme park attractions, costumes that it spawned. And let's not forget everyone's favorite, Talk Like a Pirate Day, September 19th, in case you were wondering. Historian Eric J. Dolan chronicles the history of America's most notorious pirates in his new book, Black Flags, Blue Waters, and tells me why he was drawn to write about pirates in the first place. Well, actually, I have to have to lay the responsibility at the feet of my two teenage kids, Lily and Harry. After I finished my last book, which was uh, Brilliant Beacons, A History of Lighthouses, I was looking around for a topic, and never before had I pitched ideas to my kids first. But uh, one of the ideas I had was to write a book about pirates, and when I told Lily and Harry about this, their eyes lit up and they said, that's it, you have to write about pirates. And I got really excited because although I've written uh, 13 books. Neither of my kids have ever read any of them. So I figured this is my one big chance. And uh, I'm happy to report that my daughter, who's a senior in college now, has read the book and she enjoyed it. My son, who's a freshman in college, uh, only is committed to uh, reading it by the time that he's 50. But once I started doing <laughs> research on the book, I, I absolutely love the subject matter. And I have to keep in mind that uh, almost every book I've written is on a topic that I knew very little about before I started work on the book. So this book was so full of amazing surprises about American history, and it was really a lot of fun to write. And also, I think you tap into there in, in your kids' reaction, your own reaction, there really is this allure of being a pirate that's captured a lot of people's imaginations. Absolutely. Uh, I mean, it's sort of an abstract allure because the, the thing is, in abstract, the, the concept of sort of throwing your life on land aside, getting on a, a ship, going out in the open ocean with a bunch of men and maybe some women and drinking when you want and plundering at will and getting rich and maybe retiring with your wealth. In the abstract, to many people, that seems rather romantic. Uh, as I think the book points out, the reality of piracy was much darker, nastier, and violent uh, than that. But then, of course, Hollywood came in. And before Hollywood, it was Robert Louis Stevenson with Treasure Island, where, where the, the pirate's long John Silver was a nasty fellow, but he really had a heart of gold and a glint in his eye. And the, the same thing happened in Hollywood, when they started to take up pirates, a lot of the myths about pirates were amplified, and pirates were portrayed as these roguish rapscallions, good-natured, though, and they always had a woman in every port or maybe a woman on their ship, and there, there was something endearing about them, especially when somebody like Errol Flynn, who was very good-looking, played a pirate. It just became part of our uh, cultural sense about pirates, and then, of course, Pirates of the Caribbean and Johnny Depp as exploded the pirate mania. And, and so let's talk about the reality of it. I, it. During the course of your research in the book, you point out that a lot of the things that we assume that pirates did or what they dressed or what they looked like and all these other kinds of things, most of it was made up. And there's <laughs> one, there's like one particular uh, history of pirates spelled with a Y that kind of spelled it all out. But you point out that most of the things... You really can't find any other source for it, can you? Well, yeah, The General History of Pirates by Charles Johnson, first published in 1724, is this massive compendium of pirate lore. A lot of it is, is accurate because it's based on uh, trial transcripts, uh, local reports, letters that are written back and forth between the colonies 
and the uh, the the mother country. So uh, this book is not all false, but there are a lot of things in it that are not true and sort of have come down to us as myth. But I want to back up for a second. There is a lot of information about pirates. Unfortunately, it doesn't come from the pirates' mouths so often because many of them were killed or hanged on land after they were captured. But there are a number of trials, trials, transcripts, uh, depositions taken from pirates uh, after they're captured. There are hundreds of thousands of letters that were written from the colonies to the mother country and back again, all laying out what these pirates were doing, who they were plundering, where they were going, and the atrocities that they were committing. And then there are individuals who were captured by pirates and later escaped who wrote of their travail. So there is much more information than just this one general history of the pirates, which is held out there, is it's probably the seminal book on pirates, and it was a great bestseller of the time and was reprinted many times. But there's a lot of other information out there as well. But he did a disservice that he sort of created some of the imagery of pirates that we are still are contending with today. So let's talk about the colonies, because I know I was surprised to learn how intricated and, and, and how woven into the society that they were because probably from all these, you know, the modern pirate movies and books that you mentioned earlier, I usually only think of them as like roving the waters of the Caribbean and not like pulling into Boston and New York and all these places. Why don't you tell us a little bit about how that relationship worked? Sure. That was the most amazing discovery for me in the entire process, how prior to 1700, especially in the 1690s, there were these red seamen, they were called. They were pirates who uh, left from the American shores, went around the Cape of Good Hope, went into the Indian Ocean to attack Mughal or Indian Muslim ships transiting between India and the Red Sea ports of Jeddah and Mocha. And they had been given faked privateering licenses or letters of mark by colonial governors to go uh, do these piracies in the Indian Ocean. And they often came back to the colonies with silver, gold, jewels, cloth, all sorts of treasure. And they were welcomed back in the colonies with open arms, even though they often committed dastardly crimes in the Indian Ocean. And that's because these pirates, and there were many, many hundreds of them and scores of ships, these pirates were the fathers, sons, and brothers of the colonists. And and they came from these colonies. And then when they made their riches, many of them went back to the colonies and they were reincorporated into the fabric of their communities. Colonial governors took kickbacks. They would charge for these fake privateering licenses. And then when the pirates came back to the colonies in order for them to be protected and not prosecuted like the Crown and Parliament wanted them to be, the governors would demand a hundred pounds or hundred pieces of eight per pirate to be protected from prosecution. It was called protection money. So it was like early American white-collar crime. And New York, where you are, was the epicenter for it. A notorious pirate haven, as you point out. (laughs) Yes. Uh, Well, Governor Benjamin Fletcher in the 1690s was absolutely notorious for accepting kickbacks from pirates. Uh, When he retired from office or sort of was forced out of office, it was estimated that he had illegally obtained 30,000 pounds worth of 
graft and corruption, much of that from the pirates who he supported and entertained. You know, in in reading your book, I couldn't help but think about the American Revolution, which was still to come, and how this, you know, this this group of people and this idea of just going out, doing what you have to do and rebelling against the rules, it almost feels like it, it was laying the groundwork of the split from England. In one sense, it really was. Not so much what the pirates were doing, but especially prior to 1700, because the colonies were on the edge of empire, and they often felt mistreated by the mother country. They were starved of currency, and they, of course, had uh, you know taxation without representation even back then. So part of the reason that colonists were so willing to support pirates in those early years, even though the mother country wanted them to clamp down on pirates, is because the colonists sort of were sticking their their middle finger up against the uh, against the mother country or thumbing their nose at them and saying, well, this is benefiting us, and we're sorry that you don't like it, but you're not treating us very well. So there are echoes of that in the American Revolution. And some people have made a linkage between pirate the pirate code and the fact that pirates had a lot of democratic principles that they lived by. They would vote on their captain. They could vote their captain out. They would share their booty equally. Uh, These democratic principles, I don't draw a connection between that and what later happened in the American Revolution, because if anything, pirates were not political philosophers. They adopted these democratic principles on the ocean because it was a way of structuring a floating society so they wouldn't be at each other's necks. Um, But there are some connections. Your book is full of stories of of pirates that we know of, like Blackbeard and Captain Kidd. In the course of your research, did you find, like, a favorite pirate? (laughs) Yeah, I I have to rephrase it. Uh, None of them were my favorites. They're a bunch of miserable fellows, although (laughs) they're fascinating. They're (laughs) fascinating. And the one that I found most fascinating, I think, because he was the most vicious, and we have a lot of information about him, was a guy named Edward Lowe, or Ned Lowe, who operated in the early 1720s off the coast of America, and also in the Caribbean, and actually across the Atlantic. And he was a sadistic person. Uh, his, uh, he seemed to relish torturing and killing his victims. And one of his signature moves was cutting off people's lips and ears and roasting them and then forcing the victim to eat their own flesh. One time when a captain of a ship cut a rope that held a bag of gold and silver so that the money fell into the ocean instead of into the pirate's hands, Edward Lowe killed the pirate, and he killed all 32 of his men. And uh, he just is, is fascinating because of the way that he operated And also, one of the things that was really fascinating about his story is that he, like many pirates, forced some men to become pirates, forced them to go on the account. One of the men that he forced to become a pirate was a guy named Philip Ashton, who was a fisherman from my hometown of Marblehead, Massachusetts. But Philip Ashton escaped from Edward Lowe in the Bay of Honduras and landed on a small island called Roatan, And he was there for almost two years, most of it entirely alone before he was rescued and reunited with his family. But what makes his story fascinating with respect to the pirate is that when he came back, a local minister 
helped him sort of write his autobiography of his time as a real-life American Robinson Crusoe. And in that autobiography, there's a huge amount of information and observations about Edward Lowe. So that helps fill out our image of this notorious pirate. And a lot of these pirates, they, they all met their ends in not a very nice way, which I guess is rightly so. <laughs> yeah, well... Uh, yeah, again, you have to. The, the book is sort of broken down in two parts before 1700 and after 1700. Before 1700, quite a few of these pirates uh, did get away with their riches and didn't have a particularly nasty end. But in the 17 teens and the 1720s, uh, when you have guys like Edward Lowe and uh, Blackbeard and Steed Bonnet, yes, that was when the full on war against pirates was in effect. And 68 pirates were hanged in colonial ports. And in the broader Atlantic, more than 400 pirates were ultimately hanged. And many pirates, in addition, were killed in battles on the ocean against naval forces. Of course, the most famous death in that manner was Blackbeard's himself. Uh, Lieutenant Robert Maynard, a British uh, naval officer, he led a force of men and encountered Blackbeard off Ocracoke Island in North Carolina, and they defeated Blackbeard's men, and they killed Blackbeard, and then they severed his head and hung it from the bowsprit of Maynard's sloop as he paraded the, the remaining pirates back to Williamsburg, Virginia, to go on trial. So, yes, many pirates had a short, brutish life, were not, <laughs> did not earn a lot of money, and uh, ended in a gruesome way. And in case you couldn't picture that, there is a, a drawing of that in the book. <laughs> yeah, so, there, there are a lot of interesting uh, illustrations of, uh, of people uh, swinging from the gallows or having their heads severed. <laughs> I thought particularly, too, what they did to Kid with uh, the, the high tide, the low tide, and then taking him out where his body hung for years over the water is just oh yeah well that was fairly common uh what since the since these crimes were committed on in the ocean they came under maritime law and the idea was they would be hung at the edge of the water uh because that's where the the maritime or the admiralty court jurisdiction extended to and they would be left there hanging for three tide cycles in a sense, it was a form of ablution that was supposed to wash their sins away. But with Captain Kidd, is they hung his body from a gibbet in an iron cage at the mouth of the Thames, and they slathered his body in about an inch of tar so that it would retain the human form as long as possible. And Kidd was left there hanging, according to some accounts, 10 to 15 years as a silent and ominous warning for other mariners who came into London that they shouldn't pursue this path, the path of piracy. Beware all ye who cross the sway, right? <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. So I guess we can't really talk about pirates unless, um, and not talk about treasure and booty. Yes. And as you mentioned, a lot of these guys came back and didn't have anything either because the, the sailings failed or they drank it all away or gambled it all away or spent it on women. But there are some tales of sunken treasure along the American coast. There are tales, and that's exactly what they are. There's absolutely no evidence that any pirate ever buried any treasure, not only along the American coast, but anywhere. Uh, they often spent it as 
fast as they got it. There was no guarantee they were going to be able to get back to some location to dig up this treasure. And somebody else might find the treasure. And we have to go back to Captain Kidd. He sort of is the origin or the source for these great myths, because when he was ultimately brought before justice, as he was heading back to Boston to hopefully get help from uh, friends in high places, it was rumored that he was bringing back from the Indian Ocean 400 to 500,000 pounds sterling worth of treasure. The problem is when he ultimately uh, gave himself up, he only had 14,000 pounds sterling worth of treasure. So that started everybody thinking, you know, he must have buried a lot of it along the way. And since that time, since the early 1700s, and certainly ramping up in the 1900s, a lot of people have spent a lot of time looking for Captain Kidd's buried hoard, but none have found it. And that's because it is not there, and nobody is going to find it. So while there are some ships, pirate ships, that had a lot of treasure on board that sank, and have been recovered, uh, there's no evidence of any pirate uh, burying their treasure, nor has there ever come to light an authentic pirate map where X marks the spot. Something tells me, though, that these legends will long persist. Of, oh, of course. <laughs> you know, if there's one thing that you learn from reading and certainly writing history is that some stories seems so good and are retold so often that even though they're debunked over and over again, they linger in the human mind. So how do you plan on topping pirates? Because it seems like a pretty tall challenge. <laughs> well, actually, my next book is on a topic that should also be of interest, great interest to your listeners, because I am writing a narrative history of hurricanes in America, going all the way back to Christopher Columbus, up through the present, and of course I will be talking about Hurricane Sandy and other hurricanes that affected uh, New York. Well, that definitely does sound interesting. We're going to have to have you back when, uh, when that book comes out. Great. Great. The book we've been talking about is Black Flags, Blue Waters, The Epic History of America's Most Notorious Pirates. Eric J. Dolan, thank you for taking some time and regaling us with these tales. Well, thank you for having me on. The action in One Fatal Mistake, the new thriller from Tom Hunt, starts on page one and doesn't let up until the very end. And along the way, readers learn just how quickly one decision can spiral out of control. Tom recently stopped by our studios where he told me about the real-life encounter that inspired his story. So basically the book starts with a 16-year-old kid who gets in an accident, a car accident out in the middle of nowhere. He hits a man and kills him. And for various reasons, he decides to cover it up instead of reporting it to the police. And then eventually he tells his mother what happened. And she also decides to kind of help him just cover it up and not report it. And then pretty much what happens is various other people kind of learn about the accident and piece together what happened and then sort of use that as leverage to get them to do things and and things just kind of get out of control. Yeah, it's, I can't help but feel the story is kind of a textbook example of Murphy's Law. When something can go wrong, it will go wrong because right, right. everything goes wrong. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I always like books that kind of start out with one incident that spirals out of control. That's where the title of the book came from, One Fatal Mistake. It's kind of everything begins with one 
that one fatal mistake, and then it just kind of snowballs from there. So where did the idea for the story come from? <laughs> well, it was funny. It was, it was actually kind of inspired by a true story. It happened years ago. Me and a friend were out driving. I'm from Iowa, which is where the book takes place. We were out in the middle of nowhere, and there was just someone out there just randomly. I don't know if they were hunting or what, but I almost hit him with my car. And so as we were kind of driving past that, we just kind of started chatting, like, what would have happened if, you know, we would have been in an accident and how, how different things would have been. And so that had always kind of stuck with me. It happened a long time ago, but that was sort of the, the beginning of the, the idea. I think things like that, when they happen to you, it really can happen to anybody. And right. it makes you and it makes you think. And I guess that's what makes this book so real, too, because it's really a big what if question. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, I like this book and as well as my first book, which is named Killer Choice. They both star just normal, everyday characters who are very relatable. You know, they're not police officers or, you know, international super spies or anything like that. It's just normal, everyday people who just get caught up in a situation that kind of starts out as something relatively minor and then it spirals into something that's totally out of control and they're just really out of their element with all these you know various things happening and you also play with this idea of the lengths that people go to to protect the ones that they love right yeah yeah that was kind of with my first book killer choice that was kind of the general like theme of the book was how far will a husband go to save his wife and in this book, One Fatal Mistake, sort of like the general theme is how far will a mother go to save her son? And so that, like you mentioned, it's kind of a what if thing, like how far will they go? And I think it, I hope at least that it's very easy for people to relate to. I think so. And I mean, it's also like page turner is no joke when you would, it's like an apt description for this book because you don't want to put it down. <laughs> now, I got to read an advanced copy of the book. And on the very last page, there's a clue that a certain someone maybe did or didn't make it. <laughs> I don't know if you caught that when you looked at it. Yeah, you know, that was something that actually slipped through. It's in the advanced copy, but we right. corrected it in the actual copy. So what made you change your mind? I'm not, not going to give anything yeah. away. <laughs> oh, I don't know. It just... For one thing, honestly, it was a real time crunch because, you know, we wanted to get the book done by a certain time. And so I had kind of played with the idea of something happening to one character at the end. And then there just wasn't honestly that much time to write it in. And I don't know. It wasn't like something I absolutely wanted in there. So, well, I like I like the ending that's in the final copy of the book. I think that it makes the most sense to me. Yeah, to totally. to leave it the way you left it. But well, I also, okay. when I came across that sentence, I'm like, wait, did I miss something? I have to go back and read because <laughs> I thought I had simply just skipped over it, but no, I didn't. no, you caught everything. <laughs> so let's go back to the true story, the real life thing that happened to you. Yeah. Now that you've written this book, would you, like, if you had hit that person, would you have reacted the same way the characters in your book oh, do, or would I don't you know. have done something else? I think I would have had to report it. <laughs> yeah, I don't think I could hit someone with my car and kill them and just act like nothing happened. But I don't know. It's easy to say that kind of from a distance and kind of when... You know, something happens and it's the heat of the moment right. and adrenaline is kicking in. Like, you know, you might react differently. That's kind of out of character. You just never know. We all like to think we'll take the high road. Right, exactly. So uh, what are you working on next? Uh, working on the outline for my third book, 
So still kind of playing around with a few ideas, but I have a few that I really like. And, you know, it's kind of just right now in the process of taking it from an idea into like a really detailed outline and then presenting it to my editor and hoping that she'll like it and kind of have feedback and be able to... Another thriller? Yeah, definitely another thriller. Yeah, once... Think about the publishing industry is once you're kind of known for one type of book, that's the type of book readers expect you to write. So another really fast-paced, you know, adrenaline-fueled book, and we'll see. Well, I look forward to that. This The latest one, though, that you can read now is One Fatal Mistake. Tom Hunt, thank you for coming into our studios and talking to us today. Thank you so much for having me. And let's put a bookmark here. We've got a couple of things cooking for next week, a little politics, a couple of thrillers. We'll see how things shake out. If you can't wait until then and want to be in the know before everyone else, find us on Twitter and Instagram at WCBS ADD Books.